My name is Paul Muma. I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis. If this is your first time, a special welcome to all of you. We've been in a series that we are just simply calling The Light. And one of the things that we've got to do in order to talk about the light, in order to talk about Jesus Christ as the light of the world, is we've got to spend some time talking about darkness. And a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, uh, we started off uh, this teaching time, the lights were out in the room, and we talked about the reality of darkness. And the thing with darkness is that it's best defined, really, as the absence of light, but it's, it's not so much something you see when you think about darkness as it's something that you don't see. Uh, did you know that the word darkness is used at least 200 times in Scripture? 200 times in Scripture is the word darkness used, and on many occasions, the word darkness is used as a metaphor to describe what life without God is like. And there's evidence of darkness all around us. If you haven't seen it, maybe flip on the evening news tonight and just listen to some of the stories and some of the updates, the things that are happening here in our own community, in our country, in our world. Open the headlines of the newspaper when you get home this afternoon and just read some of the various stories. The darkness is all around us. I mean, pay attention to your thought processes, you know, when it comes to temptation or personal sin. I mean, you don't have to look long to realize that the presence and the power of darkness is very real and that it's all around us. And the thing is that when you live in opposition to God's love, when you refuse to follow His direction for your life, when you choose your own selfish path over the path that He has provided for us, you find yourself in a dark place. And our community can become very dark. Your home can become very dark. You know, our country can become a very dark place. But the good news is that Christmas is God's answer to the problem of darkness. Jesus Christ is the answer to that problem. That's why we celebrate Jesus at this time of the year because He is the light of the world and God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as light of light, the light of Jesus into this dark world. Uh, John chapter 1 verse 9, John is writing and he's talking about the reality of Jesus' birth, of His life here on this earth. He writes in John chapter 1 verse 9, the true light that gives light to every man and woman was coming into the world. And so right here, John calls Jesus Christ the true light, a light that gives light, that shines light in the darkness so that others can see. And that's the reason why we celebrate Christmas, that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And later we see Jesus saying the following about himself in, in the same book of John, in John chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Jesus Christ is that light that shines into the darkness, a light that gives light to all of the darkness. And and this morning, I want to just spend a little bit of time talking about what it means for you and me as followers of Jesus Christ to reflect that light to others. Because you may recall, and we discussed this a couple of weeks ago in the book of Matthew, as Jesus was teaching, he said, you are the light of the world. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are the light of the world. It's part of your purpose. It's part of your reason for living. It's part of our reason uh, to exist as a church. And the thing is that if we're going to help people find their way back to God, if we're going to reflect the light here in this community, it's not so much something that we just try and do as a church through a program or event. It's about you and me becoming something. 
If we're going to reflect the light, you are going to have to take personal ownership for you, for your life, and say, you know what? I'm going to take these words as truth, and I'm going to reflect the light of Jesus Christ with my life in the way that I live in my neighborhood, in my home, with my friend group, with my play date group, in my office, with my t-ball team, my soccer team, whatever it may be. It means you being that light. Jesus said you are the light of the world. And you and I are called to reflect that light. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Philippians. Go to Philippians chapter 2. The book of Philippians is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to a church in a place called Philippi, to a group of people just like you and me. He's writing these words to them. As you're turning there, I just want to share you a quick story. This past week, I was out running some errands. Excuse me. There we go. We'll get there. Uh, With my two boys. Uh, Joel is six and Luke is four and it was just the three of us were in the minivan doing the minivan thing and driving down the road and uh, it was dark out and so my boys were enjoying the Christmas lights and I thought okay well here's a good teaching moment I talked to you about a couple of weeks ago that in medieval times the lights were placed in the windows of Christians homes to say hey Jesus is the light of the world it started all the way back then and it just kind of extended into all the crazy things we do with lights today so I'm having this teaching moment with my kids and I say well you know it kind of leads into you know what are the lights all about and then what's Christmas all about and so let's unpack the Christmas gift thing for a second you know Christmas isn't all about gifts and Joel my six-year-old he kind of you know kind of stood up in that moment and said well yeah daddy that's right but the wise men brought gifts to Jesus and I'm thinking, wow, you know, here it is. You're my six-year-old boy. And, and so I follow up with a question, you know. Well, tell me, Joel, what were those three gifts? And, and I'm waiting to see, you know, how does he understand the scriptures and this future theologian here and just kind of let him dissect these words and the symbols of the various gifts. And, and he's kind of, kind of got this face look on his face and all of a sudden he says the three gifts. Frankenstein. I'm not kidding. I'm not making that up. He says, Frank, he doesn't even know who Frankenstein is. But he says, Frankenstein, gold, and then Luke, my four-year-old, pops in because Joel doesn't know the third one, said in pumpkins. And, uh, and he was just all serious. I mean, it was no joke or anything. And pumpkins. And I got to think, you know, imagine that. Imagine if the wise man would have showed up with a jack-o'-lantern for Jesus Christ. But uh, just kind of a funny moment, kind of cute. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, it's here that the Apostle Paul talks to us about the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't a typical passage that we would look at at Christmas time. We'd spend time in Matthew or in Luke or in John. But in Philippians 2... We read here about a term that we use, a word called the incarnation. And and the incarnation is kind of a fancy word that theologians like to throw around, but it's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The word is taken from a Latin term that simply means to enter or become flesh. That's what the word incarnation means. One Bible dictionary defines it this way. The incarnation as that act of grace whereby Christ took our human nature into union with his divine person and became a man. Basically, what the word means is this, is that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that God himself came to this earth, took on flesh, and became a man. And so this morning, I want to spend a little time talking about this truth, talking about this reality, that the God of heaven came to the earth, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and took on human flesh, just like you and me, to experience what we experience, but to set forth for us an example. I mean, because what does it really mean to know or to embrace this incarnation that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? I mean, what does this mean for us? I mean, in everyday living, you know, when you go to work tomorrow, what can I do with this? Well, here's the thing. The way 
in which Jesus chose to come to this earth, I really believe sets for us an example for how we ought to live. I mean, the path that Jesus Christ chose in coming to earth, I think it sets for us an example to follow in that I almost believe it becomes a personal challenge then about how we should respond to and treat other people. And I want to show you why. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes this very clearly. Your attitude, men and women, children, students, followers of Jesus Christ, people of the church of Philippi 2,000 years later, even here at Genesis Church this morning, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. That's what he says very plainly and very clearly. What does this mean? That you and I should have the spirit of Jesus Christ in our life and in our relationships with one another. I mean, we should reflect this spirit in the people that we come into contact with, with our children, with our, our spouse, you know, with our family members. You know, popular writer and speaker Beth Moore, she talks about what does this mean for this incarnation to pour through into you and me? What's it mean for you and me to live like Jesus? She writes, just keep, just keep looking into the mirror until you no longer see yourself and all you see is Jesus. That's that spiritual transformation. I mean, that God desires for you and me to continue growing you know, to continue becoming more and more like Jesus Christ with our life. What do you see when you look in the mirror? You know, how, how, how has it changed? And I'm not talking about weight or hair or gray hair or whatever. I got a lot more gray hair coming in. You know, but what do you see when you look in the mirror? You see more and more of Jesus in you. you know, that while you know, hey, I got a long way to go. And you know, thank goodness for the grace and the mercy and the love of, of Christ. Because you know, I make a lot of mistakes. But, but I, I got a long way to go. But, but I'm getting there. Or, wow, I really don't see any change in me at all. I mean, you see yourself becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what he wants for us. And that's our goal here at Genesis. It's for you and me to become more and more like Jesus with our lives. I mean, if we're going to help people find their way back to God, if that's going to truly be the mission of our church, I mean, you and I have to take a personal responsibility to say, I want to be more like Jesus. You know, as a husband, as a wife, as a brother, as a son, as a student, as a coworker, an employee, a teammate. You and I are called to reflect Jesus in his spirit with our lives. Well, next Paul uses the incarnation here to illustrate the attitude that Jesus had. Look at verses six and seven. He writes, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped. I love those words. I I can't think of greater words there that Jesus Christ, who being in very nature, God, he is God. He is the incarnation. He is God who came to earth. But who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I mean, he didn't spend a lot of time going around playing the God card, you know. He knew when to play it and at just the right time, the most appropriate time. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Because he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, the incarnation, skin and flesh, just like you and me. That's the incarnation, that Jesus is God. He has always been God. There has never been a moment when he did not exist. He is God. Jesus is God. But he makes himself nothing, and he's made in human likeness. And Paul points to the incarnation here, in the incarnation here, and he says, in order for Jesus Christ to come to earth, he had to set aside, he had to take personal responsibility to set aside all of his own interests so that he could take on the interests of ours. He had to put himself to the side so that he could consider you and me first. And we get all of this theology here in just three verses. And there's a lot of stuff here. 
But this is Jesus. This is who he came to be. And, and taking this into account, if you again go all the way back to Luke chapter 2, and Andrew read that, that text for us just a few minutes ago, Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, it says, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. This is Luke's account of Jesus' birth. For the baby to be born, verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, a son, Jesus. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And so Jesus makes this humble entrance, this humble invasion into earth. He sets aside his own interest for us. He chooses a stable of sorts. And typically when we read the story of Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the shepherd and the wise men, you know, in Luke 2, we get this picture in our mind of this beautiful scene, you know, and, and maybe for you, you have this picture in your mind that you go back to. It's the, the church that you drive past on the way home or the church that you grew up in and they've got the stable outside and Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and, and, and they paint this pretty picture. I, I was thinking about how that kind of, you know, we kind of give the wrong impression to people at times. I wonder if that's what it was really like. We've got this Fisher-Price nativity set in our house with all of the pieces and our kids play with it. And I realized that this morning as I was setting it up here on this table because I don't have Mary and Joseph with me today. Uh, they're probably under a couch or uh, maybe my boys have their little army men set up and Mary and Joseph will be battling them on the opposite side. Uh, I have no idea what's happening there. But uh, we, we've, again, our, our kids love to play with this little nativity. And in our minds, if you're like me, I always picture a, a stable sort of like this. You know, a nice clean place, very comfortable, warm, you know. I don't think it was probably that way. In fact, they say it was most likely a cave, you know, where Jesus was born. A very dark place, a damp place, dirty. It was for animals. It's where they were. They went for protection. It's where they ate their food. You know, and that's most likely the place that Jesus chose to be born. Remember, and he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He took the humble path, the humble route. He, he chose the cave. I also think in my mind that we see this picture of Mary. You kind of get this picture in your mind of Mary, brand new mother, you know, just minutes after giving birth, kneeling next to the manger of Jesus. Now, in my mind, uh, and I have sort of been through three deliveries, not in any way like my wife has, but I've been there. Um, but, you know, a donkey ride for several days, nine months of pregnancy, no epidural, and she's just given birth. Ladies, can you help me out? Is she kneeling with a big smile on her face next to the uh, crib of Jesus? Probably not. All right. But, but again, that's kind of the image that we, we paint, the, the thing that we see in our mind. There was no hospital bed for her. There wasn't even room in the inn. They, again, chose this cave. And there are animals present from sheep to donkeys to camels to the nativity set has this little dog that kind of looks like Lassie, which I think is kind of interesting. But, uh, you know, we, we've got animals present. Animals in the delivery room is never a good thing. You know, I mean, there's, there, there's, some, there's some health violations that are definitely uh, broken uh, by, by this type of a scene. Philip Keller, he's written this book entitled Rabboni. And because of his understanding of culture and the environment around Bethlehem, he, he creates this depiction of what he thinks that night looked like. He writes, The sheep corral, filthy as only an eastern animal enclosure can be, reeked pungently with manure and urine accumulated across the seasons. Joseph cleared a corner just large enough for Mary to lie down. Birth pains had started. She writhed with agony on the ground. Joseph, in his inexperienced and unknowingly manly manner, did his best to reassure her. His own outer tunic would be her bed, his rough saddlebag her pillow. 
Hay, straw, or other animal fodder was non-existent. This was not hay or grain-growing country. Stock barely survived by grazing on the sparse vegetation that sprang from that semi-desert terrain. Mary moaned and groaned in the darkness of the sheep shelter. Joseph swept away the dust and dirt from a small space in one of the hand-hewn mangers carved from soft limestone rock. He arranged a place where Mary could lay the newborn baby all bundled up in the clothes she had brought along. And there alone, unaided, without strangers or friends to witness her ordeal, in the darkness she delivered her son. It was the unpretentious entrance, the stage entrance of the Son of Man, the Son of God, very God in human form, on earth's stage. That's the Son of God. That's Jesus. That's the light of the world born in a cave, that's the stage that he chose. Remember, being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he became a servant. And this is the stage, this is the platform that he chose. But why this stage? I mean, I think that this stage, this path that Jesus chose kind of gives us a picture of the type of life that he wants us to live. The type of life he's inviting us to live. It's a life where you and I are willing to set aside our own interests for the sake of others. That Jesus Christ was willing to leave the glory of heaven for this world. That one who deserved royalty became poor. One that should have had his own feet washed came to wash the feet of others. And now you and I have been called to live with this very same attitude. Paul unpacks that a little bit more in Philippians chapter 2. If you back up a couple of verses... Verses 3 and 4, it gives us some pretty simple words to help us understand what this type of life looks like. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. In humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look out for your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so what do we do with this? You know, I mean, how does this impact the way that we live right now or tomorrow, whenever that may be? I think maybe the question becomes, how can I live like that this Christmas? If I'm willing to embrace this truth, and if it's just smacking you upside the head this morning, I mean, how does this change the way that I live? How does this change the way that I treat others, and maybe even at this Christmas? I mean, if we go with Scripture, if we take these words to be absolute truth, and I recommend that we do, then we understand that life is not about what you and I can get out of it. It's really not. It's about looking to the interests of others. That's the application of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that we look at others as more important than we are. Because of, because of what Jesus did, we're willing to set aside our own interests for the sake of others. So what's that look like come Christmas, you know? What does that look like in your house right now? I mean, when you think about your house, do you see a home you know, whether that's just your family or extended family with everyone looking out for the interests of others, you know, or does your home more look like most homes where, you know, everybody's kind of sizing up their gifts and doing the count and doing the math in their head to make sure it all adds up that it's even for everyone, you know, that's been our home at times. But that's the, that's the application here that we want to look to because, you know, I think we all struggle with selfishness. I, I think it's just something that's been in us from the very beginning. It's a part of our broken selves. To struggle with selfishness. It's something we learn very early in life. I, I was reading a story the other day about the effects that World War II was having on orphans living in Europe at the time. What they found is that for safety's sake, many of the orphans were moved from their orphanages into refugee camp. 
camps, obviously, for, for safety and for protection. <clears throat> and the caretakers noticed over a period of time something pretty interesting about the orphans, and that was that they wouldn't sleep at night. They were very restless, very anxious, and, and for many different reasons. But one thing that they centered in on over time was realizing and knowing that many of these orphans were coming from orphanages where the culture was kind of the survival of the fittest type of, of thing, that that had to be your determination. Even if you wanted to eat or survive as orphans, these children, that was just kind of built into them. Well, that carried over into these refugee camps to the point that these kids would lay restless at night. They wouldn't sleep. And so over time, they found that if they would simply give them a piece of bread at bedtime, that most kids would clutch that piece of bread in their hands throughout the course of the night and they would sleep because they would have this assurance and this security that at least in the morning they'd have something to eat. You know, and so even at a young age, it, it's kind of you know, just a part of who we become that we look out for ourselves. You know, because if we don't look out for ourselves, who will? And this carries over into our marriages, right? I mean, have you ever had this experience? I mean, you and your spouse, you're laying in bed, you've got a newborn, it's like 5.30 in the morning, and you realize that nobody should be getting up around 5.30 in the morning, and so you hear the baby crying, and so you kind of fake sleep a little bit, you know, and, and maybe throw in a little fake snore in there or whatever, and just kind of hope that, you know, your spouse wants to give you a little extra rest, or, or maybe you... you forget that the garbage hasn't been taken out yet you know oh i forgot that the garbage comes every monday you know i I just can't get my mind around it and and so maybe that's the way that you roll or or maybe you've had this kind of conversation in your house over the past couple of weeks maybe your wife has said to you honey you really don't have to get me anything for christmas this year all right i don't expect you to give me anything well i'd like to talk to the husbands for just a second and especially to the newlywed husbands, like if you qualify, if you're just like a few years into this marriage thing, and maybe your wife has said the words, honey, you don't really have to get me anything for Christmas. My friends, my fellow husbands, my, these partners in this thing that we call marriage, uh, the words you really don't have to get me anything might not appear uh, to be as they sound. It's possible that what your wife is really saying is that the test, the game has officially begun. And uh, play wisely, you know, because her saying that she doesn't want anything might mean that there is something in particular. There is a special something and she expects you to pass the test. And so best of luck, best of wishes to all of our husbands in the room. And we hope to see you on the other side, you know, but it's seriously, it's easy to kind of look out for ourselves. And Jesus calls us to a selfless way of living. He calls us to live a life of sacrifice. He modeled this for us in his birth. He modeled this in his ministry. And he's called us to do the same. And, you know, for you, I mean, maybe that's not as big of a deal, but you live that out as you think about your kids, you know, and you sacrifice for them. You sacrifice to make sure that they have the clothes that they need. You make sure that they have the food they need. And even though it's been tough financially this year, you're making a sacrifice to make sure that they've got some Christmas gifts under the tree. And I think that's noble and everything. But I wonder, what does selfless living look like when the rude lady cuts you off in line at Walmart, you know? What does selfless living mean mean there? Or or what does selfless living mean when the telemarketer calls during dinner again, you know? What does selfless living look like in that type of a situation? Or or what do you do when your coworker is talking behind your back in the office and you know that he or she is? What does selfless living look like then? Or, Or what about a spouse who never seems to have anything good or positive to say about you? What does selfless living look like then? What do you do when it's someone you don't know? I mean, what does it mean to show 
kindness and reflect the light and hope of Jesus Christ to people who you don't even know. I, I saw great evidence of this yesterday and this past week too. It was, it was awesome to see this past Sunday all of the gifts that were piled up underneath the Christmas tree out in our cafe area. And we delivered all of those gifts on Monday night over to Deer Creek Community Church. And yesterday they hosted this great event where some 25 families, 100 people total, came in throughout the course of the day, families in need right here in our own community, and they were able to shop and pick up these Christmas gifts for their children. And and I saw many of you there serving. I was only there for a short time, but it was just awesome to see the generosity of this church in giving, the generosity of this church and people investing in their time, reflecting the light of Jesus Christ to a bunch of people you've never met before. And that's what we're called to do as a church. That's what, that's what God wants for us. That's what Christ wants for us. That's the example and the model that he set for us. And so what does that look like to do that with you know, our everyday lives? I was reading the other day, one church has a statement. It just says this, love people when they least expect it and least deserve it. That's a, one of their core values. I think, what, what would that be like for Genesis? To say, you know what, that's something we embrace. We love people when they least expect it and least deserve it. That's reflecting the light. It's God's work in us. It's the way that Jesus wants us to love. You know, the Bible says while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, when we were at our worst, that God loved us. While we were still sinners, when we were at our worst, God loved us. And when we show other people the light by putting their interests ahead of ours, when we shine, then we shine that light brightly in the darkness. Now, when we put other people's interests first, the Apostle Paul said, consider others better than yourselves, put their interests ahead of yours. Well, let's go a little bit further in Philippians chapter 2, just a few more verses. Uh, Paul gives us another example, another way we can live out the incarnation with our lives. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Again, he's writing to this group of people 2,000 years ago, but it's still relevant today. He says, do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. I mean, Paul is writing to this church in Philippi. The stage is set. The culture all around this church in Philippi is darkness. I mean, thick darkness. And Paul writes, do you want to know how you as a church, how you as followers of Jesus Christ can shine like stars in your own community in the universe? He just gives some simple words. He says, I got an idea for you. Do everything without complaining and whining and grumbling. Try that on for size, the Apostle Paul says. I mean, it's an interesting phrase for us, but it's especially interesting because if you're a Jewish Christian reading that at this time, because when they read this letter and they hear these words, their minds go to a different place. There's There's a backstory to all of this because they would have gone all the way back to the Israelites living enslaved in Egypt. All right, that's where they would have gone with this. And if you read the book of Exodus and you read the story of Moses leading the people from Egypt, out of Egypt, uh, to the, the promised land, there's one common theme that emerges all along the way, and it's the people grumbling and complaining throughout the course of the journey. So God saves them, you know, and even though they had been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years, you know, God sends Moses, he saves them, he sends the plagues, They leave Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. They cross the Red Sea on dry ground. But yet they complain. 
You know, next there's no water. And so God creates a spring. He, he, he draws a spring from a rock. They've got water to drink, yet they complain. There's no food to eat. God provides manna, yet they continue to complain. They, they didn't like Moses' leadership style. They complained. You know, God sent a cloud to lead them during the day. He sent fire to lead them during the night, but they complained. They complained about his, his way of doing things. It's too hot. It's the road is too long. Constantly complaining. And as I read this and I think about this, I, I can't help but think, you know, I think our attitude, my attitude, you know, can kind of become like this attitude, especially at Christmas time. Because Christmas can bring some good out of you, but it can bring the worst out of you too, especially when you're looking at your shopping lists and family events and, you know, all these extra things that you've got to do. But God sends his son Jesus to earth and we just, it's easy to kind of complain about the way that things have fallen in our life, isn't it? Or Jesus comes to earth in a cave and we're pretty upset about the direction of our mutual funds over the past, you know, 18 months. God becomes man, the incarnation, and you and I are pretty upset or you're pretty upset that you're still single again this Christmas. Or Jesus chooses a manger, but you're like, can I get a job already? Or why can't my house be like their house? You know, and his death saves you from sin. Our citizenship is in heaven. And, and Christmas is a great time to be reminded of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because really, we don't have a lot to complain about. But some of you might respond and say, but you know what? You don't know my story. And it's true. And some of you might have a really difficult story. I mean, maybe this year has been, you know, one for the books. You'll never forget this year. You'd like to, but you won't. And so you might say, well, don't I get to complain about the cancer and what it's done? You know, don't I get to complain that I can't find a job? Don't I get to complain that my parents are cheating me out of the type of family, the happiness that I feel like I deserve? Or, or the fact that we've been able to buy our kids these certain types of gifts in past years and they're not in any way going to add up to that this year? And maybe for you, your life is genuinely difficult right now. But let's not forget that life in Philippi was no Norman Rockwell scene for these people either. And if we could chat with the Apostle Paul and tell him, of our story, tell him a bit of our stories, you know, and ask him about the relevance of these words shining like stars in the universe, quit grumbling and complaining. I wonder, in showing us what that life looks like, if he might take us back to that scene in Bethlehem, if he'd take us back to the stable, to the cave. And I wonder if he'd maybe start with Joseph or something. He'd take Joseph for a moment and say, you know what, I want you to get, get through the picture that you've painted in your mind. I want you to try and enter into the heart, the life, the mind of Joseph. Because here's this young teenage guy. He's played by all the rules. And he's got a good reputation in the community. He followed every customary rule as it pertained to his engagement and abstinence. But she's pregnant. And he's been asked to trust and he's enduring so much opposition and criticism from people that he thought were his friends. You know, saying things like your wife was a cheater, divorce her. He had every right to stone her for adultery. adultery. But for Joseph, the stage is set. Uh, He's got this platform of sorts. How's he going to respond in this moment? People are watching. And with all the pressure around him, he takes Mary, he takes his young wife. He takes her as his wife. He cares for her. And like any man, I can't help but think he really wants to provide for his family. And it must have hurt to have allowed her to give birth in a cave. 
I bet he would like to have given her so much more. Next, Paul might point to the young woman. He might point to Mary. You know, she too is a young teen. It's been a tough nine months for her. And then you've got the donkey ride. You know, you've got no bed in a hospital, no inn. And so she's giving birth in a dark cave. But in comparison to the scrutiny that she would have faced from the public, it's probably nothing. I mean, of all the nights to go into labor, why this one? But here's this young girl chosen by God for this moment. The stage is set. She's got this platform now from which she gets to respond to the circumstances that have been laid upon her with everyone watching. Here's her great opportunity to play the role that God has given to her. And we see selfless living. I mean, she does her part in bringing the Son of God into the world, the light of the world. She lays him in a feeding trough. I mean, they're probably fighting to keep the cows and the sheep, you know, back. I mean, do you think she might have been a little afraid? But I think maybe finally Paul would point to Jesus. I mean, here's the Son of God lying in a manger. I mean, if anyone had a right to complain, it's Jesus. Remember, being himself God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So he made himself nothing. He took on the nature of a servant. And while on the earth he never had a home to call his own, his family didn't get him. They thought he was crazy. His closest friends betrayed him. He didn't do anything wrong, not a thing. He was beaten, he was killed. Go looking for a place in Scripture where Jesus said, you know what, this isn't fair, how this all adds up. I mean, find a place where he whined and complained and he didn't. Because being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be set. And so the stage was set. And with everyone looking, and even you and me today, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, chose the life, the path of a servant. And that is the life that you and I are called to reflect. And so I think that as followers of Jesus, whether we like it or not, you and I have been given a stage of sorts. You with your life right now have been given a stage. You've been given a platform. And there are a number of people watching you right now waiting to see how you're going to respond. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the stakes are even greater. Because it's during these times where we find out, is it real? You talk about this faith in God, you do the church thing, you run through the motions. But even with all these circumstances over you right now, people are watching and waiting to see, okay, how will you respond on the stage, the platform that you've been given? And we are called to live the life of Jesus. You know, to shine like stars for your children, to shine like stars for your brother right now, your sister-in-law, your mom and dad, the co-worker, your next-door neighbor, or the rude lady at Walmart. But Paul says, wherever you live, whatever your circumstances, whatever your stage, your platform right now, you and I are called to reflect the light of Jesus Christ in the way that we choose to live. We've all been given a platform. We've all been given a stage. How will you respond? Albert Pujols, uh, one of my favorite baseball players, he plays first base for the St. Louis Cardinals, 2009 National League MVP. I want to show you this quick little interview that he gave recently. You've got a stage right now with your life. Uh, you've got a platform, and whether that's in your own home when you go home this afternoon for your children, whether that's going into the office tomorrow and the people that you're working around, the next-door neighbor, best friend from high school, you've been given a stage, you've been given a platform. 
to reflect the light and the love of Jesus Christ. What are you going to do with that opportunity? Paul says, shine like stars. Just do it. Shine like stars in the universe. That's our purpose. That's a part of who we are. You know, I'd love for you to be able to look at uh, the story of Christmas this year and that the story of his birth would just change the way that you live. You know, you'd be able to say, I saw the light and my my life has changed because of it. And, And instead of complaining, instead of fear, instead of being anxious, I'm going to reflect the light of Jesus to others around me. And I saw the light and instead of reflecting bitterness and anger, I'm going to reflect his kindness and encouragement. I saw the light and, and everything changed about me. You know, if you find yourself in the darkness today and maybe you're here, you've been here for some time or you're just here for the first time and, and you realize, well, I've got a lot of darkness in my life right now. I, I don't have the light, the life that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe everything changes for you today. You know, maybe this Christmas is different for you when the greatest gift that you receive is the love of Jesus Christ, His forgiveness into your life. We're going to sing a couple of songs here. When we're done, we'll have a group of people up here after the service. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you about what Jesus Christ has done in our lives and what He can do for you. And so we invite you to come forward at the end of the service. But as we sing this last song, uh, these last two songs, I, I pray that they would be your prayer. Uh, that you would hear the words, that you would read the lyrics, and that you would make this your prayer, you would make this commitment and say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shine, I'm going to reflect the light, I'm going to use my life, this stage that I've been given this platform, uh, to shine the light of Jesus.